Okay, everyone, we're going to do something right up top that we've never done before. I know we've done a lot on the show, but we have never done this. Are you ready? This episode of the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment uh, on the internet, so I guess in the world. And uh, you've probably heard a lot of these before, so what I'm going to try to do is every time I bring this up, tell you about a specific book that I personally am recommending that you can download for free at Audible. This week's selection, easy. I'm going to pick World War Z, which is a few years old now, but the trailer just came out, and I actually thought the trailer looked okay, but it looks very different from the book. And I'd love it if people could read the book before they see the movie. You know, you don't want to get that movie stuff in your head before you experience the source material. And the other reason that it's so easy to recommend World War Z, besides the fact it is a terrific book, is that the uh, format of the book is actually uniquely suited to an audiobook because it's a, a, an oral history of a fake war with zombies that uh, never really occurred, but it's just people telling stories. So I think you will really enjoy that, and you can get it for free at audiblepodcast.com. Wait for it audiblepodcast.com slash Jeff Rubin. J-E-F-F-R-U-B-I-N. Support the show. Oh, one more thing. Uh, got some spoiler warnings for this episode. This is a fantastic episode where uh, Alan Sepinwall and I discuss many, a wide variety of TV shows, but there are some spoilers that are casually dropped. Now, I don't think anything in here uh, will really ruin any show for you. In fact, I think it's a little crazy that I'm doing this, but I try to be mindful of spoiler warnings. So uh, here are some things you will hear about in this episode. Again, I can't stress this enough. I don't think any of these will ruin uh, the shows that we're talking about. One, uh, we talk about a scene from the finale of Lost. Uh, we talk about it in such an abstract way that it isn't going to make sense if you haven't watched it yet anyway. But there it is. If you're really worried about that, uh, look out. If you somehow still have not caught up on Breaking Bad... We discuss a plot twist from season three, season three of Breaking Bad. Uh, we discuss the setting of the current season of Dexter, kind of uh, just the framework on which that show now exists. I think it's stuff that's in the marketing materials, but I don't know if you catch it up on Dexter, you want to worry about that one. Uh, we talk about the later seasons of Buffy the Vampire Slayer uh, and a lot of specific things that happen there. Uh, that show is over 10 years old now. That show, The finale of that show is over 10 years old now, so... I don't really know if we have to worry about that. We talk about something that happens in the final season of Battlestar Galactica and the last 15 minutes of Six Feet Under. So all of that is in there. We talk about a lot of other shows too, but I think those are the ones where we talk about specifics that if you're just catching up on those shows, uh, you may not want to hear about yet. And uh, with all that in mind, let's start the show. Hey everybody, welcome to the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. I am Jeff Rubin, and today, on the old skype on phone I have Alan Sepinwall, TV critic for HitFix.com, and author of the new book, The Revolution Was Televised. Welcome to the show, Alan. Thanks for having me, Jeff. I appreciate being here. Now, Alan, at the risk of getting a little Chris Farley showy, let me just quickly say at the top, I am extremely excited to be talking to you. Your name has come up several times on the podcast before. Uh, notably, when I was talking to Keith Phipps of the AV Club, and we were talking about the dawn of reviewing TV shows episode by episode, and he said you were a huge influence on him and uh, the whole AV Club. Uh, but even beyond that, I'm from New Jersey, so I've been re I was reading your work uh, in the Star Ledger many years ago, and I followed you to your blog and uh, to HitFix.com. 
And your column, What's Alan Watching, is maybe the single highest priority item in my RSS reader. That is huge, Alan. That is huge. (laughs) But beyond all that, I absolutely loved your new book. Let's talk about the book. What is The Revolution Was Televised About? Uh, The Revolution Was Televised is basically about the last 15 years in TV drama, starting with The Sopranos, but even a little bit before with Oz and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and looking at how sort of TV changed, became more adult, became more serious, became more ambitious, and sort of put itself on a level playing field with the movies in terms of the level of ambition and the level of respect. I do it through the, the prism of 12 shows, including those, including Lost, The Wire, Deadwood, Friday Night Lights, Breaking Bad, Mad Men, and a bunch of others. All right, let's, let's review that list up top. There's, the, like you said, The Sopranos, Oz, The Wire, Deadwood, The Shield, Lost, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I'm so glad Buffy made the cut, 24, Battlestar Galactica, Friday Night Lights, Mad Men, and Breaking Bad. That sounds like the list, right? That, those are the 12, yes. And how long did it take you to arrive at those 12? It took a while. There was, there was a lot of going back and forth. Um, for a while, I, just, I was sort of adamant on only having 10 chapters, and so I was going to combine a few. Um, at one point, Battlestar 24 and Rescue Me were going to be all part of one mega chapter about TV and 9-11, uh, and then I realized that the stories were just sort of too different. Uh, Mad Men and Breaking Bad were going to be part of the same chapter because I didn't feel like there was enough of a different hook to Breaking Bad to justify its own chapter, as great as it is, because it's not necessarily a book of just, here are the best TV shows of all time. It's a book about, here's this specific era, and here are 12 different facets of that era. But ultimately, the more I talk to people, the more I sort of felt, okay, yeah, there's a story here. And all these shows, you know, they're all successful. People have heard of all these shows. Some were bigger than others. Some became successful after their time. But of those 12 shows, is there one whose success you think is the most surprising? Uh, I guess Lost. Lost, I remember, just and also it was the most successful show in the book by yeah, you mentioned a that. wide margin. I, th- I think that's really, of all these great shows, Lost was the most popular. And it's just, I remember watching that pilot and thinking, wow, this is great, and wow, this will be canceled in three weeks and I'll be sad. Because uh, A, it was weird. B, it was on ABC at a time when ABC couldn't launch anything whatsoever. I mean, ABC was just worse than NBC was going into this season practically. It had just been a nightmare for a number of years, and it was a strange show. It was a sci-fi kind of show, serialized, all of that. You know, who knew that Matthew Fox was was a big draw? And instead, it became this huge, huge hit to a pleasant surprise by me. What do you think it was that made Lost, you know, I say a crossover hit. It's a crossover out of nerddom and into the mainstream. Well, what it was was it very cleverly disguised its nerddom for as long as it possibly could. I mean, initially, it's just it's a show about people in a plane crash. And, you you know, it made for a great bus ad and a great billboard. And, you know, you could do all sorts of stunts and things. And it wasn't until you get, like, deeper into the show that all of a sudden there's time travel and there's all the other weird things that are happening and shapeshifters. Even the smoke monster, like, you didn't know at first what it was. And it could have, in theory been something plausible it just the show got freakier later and also not coincidentally the ratings dipped the longer it went on and the weirder it got in the book you kind of give a little history lesson about each of the shows and it seems like a lot of them have some sort of unusual start like lost for instance was very much thrown together and done in a time uh, where there was transition at the executive level of abc uh, some of them were the first shows on their networks when no one really knew what they were doing, like um, The Shield or Mad Men. 
Uh, some of them just something unusual, like Buffy being born out of that weird, not-so-great 90s movie, <laughs> is an interesting origin story a necessary ingredient for greatness for a TV show? Um, I don't know that it's necessary. Uh, it just it's sort of it so happened this way with a lot of these shows, not necessarily with all of them. What's required is what you find a lot of the time, especially in the broadcast network development process, and these days sometimes in the cable process because it's, it's no longer the Wild West and there are more laws than there used to be, is there's a lot more, okay, come in, you know, we, we have 17 pages of notes for you and we want you to incorporate them all and we want to see a season's worth of scripts and we want this and we want that and we don't trust you because millions and millions of dollars are on the line here so we're going to focus test this thing within an inch of its life. And what happened with these shows, for the most part, is they were made either at HBO at a time where HBO was just sort of in an experimental mode, at AMC at a time when AMC just sort of was desperate to have anyone pay any attention to them at all. You know, Lost was developed at a time when, you know, there was basically no time for the focus testing because they were in such a rush to do it because they fired the original creative team. Um, so I do think that there, there is a certain amount of hands-off management required to make a great show because you need to trust the creator. And sometimes the creator's terrible. Sometimes you get something like The Killing on AMC. But if the creator's talented, I would much rather see his or her vision than the executive's vision. And yet that is still the exception rather than the rule, isn't it? It absolutely is. It's, you know, I, I talk to people in the business all the time and it's only getting worse in that respect. There's, there's more layers and more notes you know, and now the network is also the studio. So you, you, it used to be once upon a time a producer could kind of play one group off of the other group, use one group to defend them from the other, and that doesn't really exist anymore. So there's a lot of creativity by community in TV today. And you know, this TV season, and I've heard you talk about this on your podcast, and I've uh, read you writing about it. Kind of a terrible TV season, isn't it? Not a lot of really strong shows, certainly. Uh, I mean, I think Ben and Kate is pretty good, and the Mindy Project's pretty good, but certainly not a lot of strong dramas this year. Yeah, I mean, I was very excited by Last Resort, and which has you know, now been canceled, and they're going to air the 13 episodes, and that's it. But that's been kind of a mess. Uh, and you know, Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. But I'm mainly sort of in there because I like Andre Brower and because I trust Sean Ryan. I have a lot um, of love for Sean Ryan, yeah. Exactly. Nashville, I wanted to like that, and that I mainly am only interested in when people are singing. So, no, this has not been a great development season. I mean, our big hit is Revolution, a show which briefly had me contemplating changing the name of the book. And that's just okay, maybe. You know, I was catching up on it today on Hulu and, you know, finding it hard to sort of encourage myself to go to the next one. I haven't seen any of those shows because, honestly, you take a lot of these hits for me. I'm like, I'll wait till Alan watches a few episodes of Revolution and tells me if it's worth sticking with. I don't want to just jump right in here. Uh, were any of those shows, uh, are they worth catching up on? Last Resort, I guess, is going to be over now, right? There's going to be, are they even finishing it? Yes, yes, they're going to finish it. They they got approval. They had shot, like, the 12th episode and we're just getting ready to do the 13th, and they got permission from the studio to say, all right, let's, can we write a new script and end it? And, you know, because that costs a little bit more money. And the studio said, sure. So it will wrap up. And what I found, you know, Sean Ryan's had a bunch of these shows not work lately, like Terriers and the Chicago Code. And at the Both of which were very feel, good. Both of, I mean, Terriers in particular. Terriors was actually, is amazing. amazing and yeah. you, get thir- you get this great 13-episode story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And you're sad that you don't get to see anymore, but you get a satisfying experience from that. Chicago Code got better towards the end as they were wrapping things up. So I would like to think the same thing will happen with Last Resort. 
but there's really I like some of those comedies you mentioned and and Ben and Kate unfortunately the ratings are virtually non-existent but there's certainly nothing this season uh, on the level of, of some of the new shows of the last few years that makes me just go wow I can't wait to get to the next one I mean I guess we haven't seen the finale yet but so far is it worth catching up on Last Resort because I'll watch a half episode you know watching a 13 episode self-contained story especially if it's as good as Terriers uh, I'm up for that it is not as good as Terriers but it does have Andre Brower giving menacing speeches in every single episode and that is kind of worth the price of admission if you're an Andre Brower fan which I am and I heard you mention uh, I can't Jake Harns Dutch from The Shield oh, you, you got Pembleton and Dutch in the same scene a couple of times which is awesome if you're a you know cop show nerd yeah I'm always happy to see Dutch show up anywhere so uh, what about is revolution has that been uh, again like I read the reviews of the pilot it seemed like there was kind of a wait and see has that improved eh, at all? It, it's it's just sort of there it's competent I guess sort of genre television but I don't really care about any of the people on the show and that's that's the difference between Lost and all of these other shows that sort of tried to copy Lost is Lost I liked the characters I was interested in the characters even sometimes when I didn't like the characters I found them interesting when Jack became kind of this insufferable drunken drip he was at least interesting you know he seemed complex I understood what motivated him and these people for the most part you know just like on Flash Forward just like on, on a lot of these shows, um, Threshold, Invasion, all of those, they're just cardboard cutouts. And that's, even if you think that the premise is cool, I'm just not going to watch hour after hour if I don't care about the people involved. Even Giancarlo Esposito? Ah, <sighs> Giancarlo Esposito. Who was uh, Gus on Breaking Bad. Yes, when, when he's on the show, I mainly wish that he was playing a better role on another show. But he, he's had a few moments here and there. It's not a terrible show. It's okay. And I sort of I understand why it's been as relatively popular as it has, especially because it has the voices lead in. It's just, it's not exciting. A lot of shows also, you know, they take some time to figure out. If you were judging Buffy, for instance, uh, by the first season alone, it's not the best show. It wasn't until the second season, I think, at least, that like uh, yes. the signs of greatness started to come through. Yeah, on our podcast last last summer, me and Dan Feinberg, my partner, we did we went through the whole first season of Buffy on Netflix week by week by week, and it's just it was kind of a bad show at times. And you'd you'd sort we'd get to the discussion, and we're just sort of really desperate for sort of signs of promise. And some episodes you just had to throw up your hands. And other others of them are quite good, but it wasn't really until like the end of that season in the finale that Joss Whedon both wrote and directed, where you say. Okay, all right, this is the show that it was about to become. And I actually, even though we didn't continue it on the podcast just because I was working on the book, I kept going and kept, you know, began rewatching season two. And I'm like, okay, yeah, this is why this is in the book. This is a great show right now. You know, the ending seasons of Buffy, like the back half of that show, the UPN seasons, are one of those things where I'm not sure where the hive mind comes down on it. Some people like them, some people don't. How do you feel about them? I think they're uneven. Um, I think just in general, there was. More than a lot of high school shows, there was just kind of no way this was going to work once they left high school because it was just so perfect, the idea of monsters as a metaphor for teen angst. And the older you get, the sillier that becomes. And there's a storyline in, I think, season six where Willow becomes addicted to magic and she eventually winds up in basically the magical equivalent of a crack house. And I understood what they were trying to do. It's just, it's ridiculous. It comes across as silly. But on the other hand, those final seasons they've got, the musical episode, um, the finale is quite good. There, there's a lot of sort of good individual moments 
within those seasons, sort of a darkness that wasn't necessarily there when they were younger, that couldn't be there. Uh, but it's it's certainly not as consistent, not as, I guess, thematically pure as it was when they were teenagers. Yeah, I guess the thing is when you grow up, you know, your problems get a lot more real, and Buffy got a lot darker, and there's the famous episode where she deals with the death of her mother. or she, you know, Which is a caring, great episode, of yeah. Of course, and she's caring for her sister, and the show just got a lot darker. I mean, some of the stuff with Spike and her and Spike's relationship, you know, and, and maybe that's just not what the show was meant to do. Change is always really difficult on shows. I mean, you look at something like The Office, where... I'm happy that Jim and Pam got together. I'm happy that they didn't just keep dragging it out and dragging it out. But sort of the Jim and Pam of season eight are very different characters from the Jim and Pam of seasons one and two, not just because they're together, but just they're older, they're in a different place in their lives, and there are certain stories that just aren't funny when a 32-year-old Jim or whatever he is is doing versus a 25-year-old Jim, and there's just no way around that. All right, let's get back to the positives. Let's get back to the shows featured in the book, uh, Desert Island, you can only take a magical DVD player that somehow works on this Desert Island, and a TV, and one of these DVD box sets. You got the 12 shows you have selected in front of you. Which one would you take? Oh, God. Uh, this is tough. I'm going to say The Wire, but I'm going to say it with a caveat, which is I went into this book thinking, okay, it's going to be The Wire. Like, The Wire is clearly it's the best show in the history of TV. There's no question. It's The Wire. It's The Wire. And then I started watching the rewatching old episodes of these other shows on HBO Go and on Netflix, and in the case of The Shield on DVD. And there's just so much good stuff in those. And you know, we're, we're sort of we're trained to now remember only the bad parts of The Sopranos for some reason. Just the the hive mind on that show has completely turned against it in a weird way. Sopranos was an amazing show. Uh, you know, Deadwood doesn't necessarily end. Deadwood is an amazing show. Lost when it was good, so great. Um, I don't know that I would want it on an island necessarily. But. <laughs> Lost is one where I love Lost. Lost is, yeah. long-time listeners of the podcast will know, one of my like top five things of all time. Sure. I love Lost. But I've never, ever, that's not true, I did this once or twice, rewatched an episode of Lost. I find them very unrewatchable. Interesting. I, see, I found it fun to go back and revisit those. Lost and Buffy were among sort of the, the, the two big delights of just, all right, I'm going to whip out the iPod, load up Netflix, and just marathon for six hours, and I really should be writing something, but I want to watch this. I think one of the things about Lost that I enjoyed so much about it was that cultural phenomenon and the way it made nerdiness very mainstream, and it was somehow socially acceptable to speculate what was in the hatch for in public, you know, for an yeah. entire summer. And that's kind of missing when you watch it now. I imagine, and I haven't gone back and rewatched the whole thing, but watching Lost now is very different than watching it when it was on the air just because of the way, you know, you can watch it all at once. The information isn't being parceled out to you. You're missing that social aspect of it. Do you think a show can be different just based on the time where you watch it? No, absolutely. And, and a lot of these shows sort of play differently, you know, when you can marathon it versus when you're watching it week to week. You know, we, we talked about this all the time with The Wire. The Wire is a show where I tell everybody you really want to watch the first four episodes all together. Otherwise, you're not going to appreciate it. So there, there's that. There's definitely the social media context is a part of it. I mean, it's not quite like, you know, watching Rocky Horror for the first time at home where it's just it's a terrible movie if you're not in a theater with people acting it out with you. But there, there is definitely a participatory quality that you don't get with some of these shows. But at the same time, I think that the really good ones are really good regardless. And admittedly, I cherry-picked my way through this. I did not go back 
and rewatch the Jack's Tattoos episode of Lost. Easily the single worst episode. Easily. Yeah. yeah. I was watching, you know, The Constant. I was watching Exodus. I was watching Through the Looking Glass. I was watching The Real, The Cream of the Crop. So I may have, you know, biased myself in that way, but it was it was a lot of fun to revisit these scenes and episodes and moments that I hadn't seen in several years. One moment that I really remember from Lost from the finale was, and I was watching it in like sort of a party environment, a very respectful party environment where speaking while the show was on was punished. Everyone's very into the show. Uh, But that moment in the finale where Jack and Locke, or it's not Locke anymore, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, Jack and Locke leap at each other on a mountain and then it cuts to commercial and everyone flipped out. And I immediately knew that that moment would not play in the future when you're watching it on DVD and you're just waiting, you know, you just got to hang on two more seconds to see how that resolves itself. Yeah, no, the the shows that were made with commercial breaks in mind, they, they lose a little something, although I talk about this in the, the S.H.I.E.L.D. chapter, where that's a show that sort of weirdly turned it to its advantage because they wrote every single scene just in case that would be the one that goes into the commercial break. So all the scenes wind up having attention, you know, that you would ordinarily get just sort of at the end of an act on a network show. But I can definitely see how that would be an issue. Now, obviously, you like all these shows. These are all good shows. But is there one that you think is the least rewatchable of this set? I don't know about least rewatchable. Certainly the lows are either lower or certainly longer with 24 than they are with any of the others. I mean, that 24 is the only show of the book that I did not watch in its entirety when it was first on. I watched more of the last couple of seasons of 24 over this past year when I was working on the book than I did at the time. Um, That's a show that just sort of, by its very nature, sometimes it was going to be great and sometimes it was going to be awful and sometimes you were just going to get a little tired of its tricks. And then that happened with me. And so I had to not only refresh my memory on some parts, but I had to learn some parts to begin with in terms of how things went in the last few years. As a TV writer... Is there one of these shows that is the most challenging to write about? Not necessarily, because I would say that sort of the good shows give you so much more to work with. Um, Mad Men, this past, these past couple of years, Matt Weiner stopped sending out screeners in advance. He just sort of decided he didn't want the press to be able to write about, to see the show because he doesn't want it spoiled. And so I would find myself staying up until, you know, one, two in the morning on a Sunday night trying to write about it and it just sort of it all flows out of you because there, there's so much in there and it's so complex and maybe you have to sit and think about that for a while in a way that I wouldn't about say an episode of The Shield. The Shield's very linear um, and Mad Men or The Sopranos or some of these others you know deal a lot more in metaphor or a lot more artsy uh, and that requires a little more thought but I don't know that it's necessarily harder in the end. It's, it's sometimes more fun to do that than just to say, you know, man, wasn't it cool? And Vic Mackey crashed through the fence. What is that review process on Sunday night? Sunday nights when most of the big shows air for a show where you don't have a screener. I imagine I know what happens, but I'd love to hear you describe it. You know, new episode of Homeland airs, new episode of Mad Men airs. You watch it at the same time as everyone else. Uh, you want to get your review or do you call them reviews? I call them reviews. Other people call them recaps. My take is, it is a review. I'm not, for the most part, summarizing plot. I'm writing this assuming you've seen the show and that this is a companion to your experience. So what is that like Sunday night when you have to write that review as quickly as you can, usually? Uh, well, fortunately, for, I, I'm going to have to start doing it for Homeland for the last few episodes of this season. But every episode until now, I've gotten to see in advance. Man, man, it's, <laughs> it's funny because 
the process before I had to write it live was I would watch the episode once at my office. I would go home. That night, I would watch it with my wife. You know, the first time I'm just watching it, not doing anything but watching it. The second time I'm watching it and taking notes. And then I would sit and talk it out with my wife for a while and just sort of try to articulate the themes and use her as a sounding board and be like, okay, now I understand. Now I'm going to write. It would basically take like a day and a half to do. Now I can't do that anymore because the episodes are not being seen in advance. And I just kind of want to get it done. Um, But also, you know, I need to go to sleep at a certain time. So... Initially, I'm like, okay, I'm going to watch the episode once, and then I'm going to watch it again, you know, the note-taking process. And I I think I lasted about a week doing that. And then I said, screw that. This is annoying. I know what I want to say, but I didn't take any notes, so I have to waste an extra hour. So now I watch it once. I take a lot of notes as I'm doing it. I sit there, and I talk to my wife for 10 minutes. And then I figure it out, and I crank up iTunes, and I write, and I write, and I usually listen to the same two or three songs over and over, and, you know, Two, three hours later, it's done. What songs do you listen to? Uh, let, let me call up the iTunes playlist. There's one by Against Me called, called I Was a Teenage Anarchist, which I think was literally the only song I listened to during Mad Men Season 5 when I was writing those reviews. Because it's I'm very sort of, I need music to, to sort of pump me up and, and get me going. Otherwise, I get distracted easily. And for whatever reason, that was the song that no matter what happened, that would get me going and that would sort of keep me powering through. So... That was the big one of late. I imagine you feel a lot of pressure, you know, to get it up, especially now. And this is something you started. There's a lot of people doing this. So I imagine you feel a lot of pressure to get it up quickly. How do you balance that pressure with, you know, the desire to have deep insights and a high quality uh, column? (sighs) Believe me, that's the challenge. You know, there's a lot of people who write about fewer shows than I do, and I envy them. Um... Just because, like, I, there are definitely days where I'm like, God, I wish I only had to write about, you know, three shows this week. And I could really go to town on those shows. Uh, but at the same time, you know, part of what people like about what I do is that I'm covering a wide range of shows. Um, so that even if they don't like Homeland, you know, maybe they like Boardwalk Empire. Or maybe they like Parks and Rec. Or they like something else that I'm writing about. So I like covering a lot of things. And I, I do my best with those. But that definitely becomes a struggle sometimes where it's like, you know. This fall, Homeland, Boardwalk Empire, Treme, uh, and The Walking Dead have all been airing on Sunday nights. And that's not even including Dexter, which is having kind of a terrific season, and The Good Wife, uh, which I just don't have time to write about at all. And it takes me almost all of Thursday and Friday just to write those, all those reviews in advance. And even then, I feel like you know I could be spending more time on it. Let me ask you about Dexter. That's a show where I, since I don't watch TV professionally, was able to give up watching it after two seasons. I stopped watching last season. So sometimes I'm able to walk away. What is that like? Are you just like, guys, I'm sorry. We're just not going to have a Dexter column. I can't do this anymore. I, I've done that a few times, and it's weird because some, sometimes people like understand, and they're like, yeah, I'm sick of this show too. And other times they get upset. Like, I stopped writing about Sons of Anarchy this year. We, we have another writer, Jeff Berkshire, who's doing it for HitFix. Because it just, I felt like I was sort of saying the same things over and over again. And, you know, the people who agreed with me, you know, who, who agreed with my complaints were okay with it. And the people who didn't agree with my complaints were frustrated that I was saying the same thing over and over again. And I just decided, you know what? This isn't fun for anybody at this point. I'm going to step away. And a lot of people understood that. And then there's a lot of others like, man, you know, you should still be writing about the show. I wish you were doing it. 
Um, so it, <laughs> there's just sort of everybody wants a little more of something. Have you been watching Sons of Anarchy? Because I'm I, a few I'm a few weeks behind. I think they're having their best season since that second one, which was obviously their best season. But I think it's the best uh, one they've done in a while. I I describe myself as wa- still watching Sons of Anarchy despite my better judgment. But uh, so far, so good this season. I, I just remember there was a scene like in the last episode I saw, which was maybe two three episodes ago. I need to catch up before the end of the season. Um, there's a scene where Jax and Bobby Elvis are sitting down and they're just sort of plotting out strategy and Jax is listening okay here's what we have to do and he finishes his speech and Bobby Elvis pauses and says boy Jax that's a lot of moves <laughs> and I'm thinking that's kind of a metaphor for Sons of Anarchy right there is just really really complicated plotting sometimes just for the sake of complicated plotting but but it's fun and sometimes it's really really terrific yeah that ensemble is so good and so deep that like i don't know it, it, get, it gets away with a lot that it shouldn't yeah but wait i want to get back to dexter so i stopped watching dexter and everything i heard about it confirmed that that was the correct decision and now i'm hearing it's good again would you recommend if i were going to get back into dexter which i'm not saying i'm going to would you recommend uh, that I have to watch seasons three, four, what is it, seven, six, that I have to watch everything that happened before then, or can I just jump back in on season six? Jump back in. This is the best season the show has done since season two, uh, and probably even since midway through season two, because I feel like they sort of wimped out by the end of that season. Yeah, I think A lot true. of people like the fourth season with John Lithgow as the Trinity Killer. I think Lithgow is great. I don't think the season's that great. I think it's kind of repetitive of what they've done the previous two or three years. This has been a really good one. This feels like this is what they should have done immediately after season two, which is really just kind of deal with the reality of what Dexter is and his sister knows and she's not happy about it and she's sort of coming to grips with it piece by piece. And it's just so much more interesting as a result of that because they know they're close to the end and so they don't have to sort of keep dragging it out and they don't have to protect it and make Dexter seem like he's a hero anymore. It's so much better than it was. It's incredible what knowing the end point of a TV show can do for that TV show. Like, I think Lost, God love it, it was a little wandering in that third season, but almost, you could really line it up. Like, when they announced that end date, when they reached the deal to end the show after six seasons, it got pretty good again. Yes. There, there's a bunch of shows in the book that are like that. Uh, the Shield, I would say, is a really good example of that, where... I think every season of The Shield is good, but there's some middle seasons where you can sort of see, okay, they're all right, now the strike team's in trouble, okay, now they're getting out of it again, now the strike team's in trouble, now they're getting out, okay, all right, I've seen this. And then suddenly they decided, all right, maybe we're going to do two, three more seasons, let's start writing towards that, and it wasn't even necessarily official then, but just the show got so much more better because they, they, they could sort of start moving towards an endgame. Battlestar Galactica did that, although I know some people don't like that last Battlestar Galactica season. Lost, absolutely. The second half, I would say, is more consistent than the first half. So You seem to be of the opinion, you know, just from reading you all the time, that a bad finale like Lost, or, you know, I actually don't hate the Lost finale, but let's say Battlestar, which I do hate. Um, <laughs> even though I, I like that last season. Like, I think the mutiny is, like, as good as anything they ever did on that show. So I think the, it's worth watching the whole thing, but particularly that last episode is not my favorite. But would it be fair to say that you think that a bad finale can't ruin a show like Battlestar Galactica, but a good finale like The Shield can make a show? That is absolutely the way I would frame it. The Shield, I think, was an excellent show throughout, and yet the thing that I think kind of puts it on the level of, you know, where you can seriously talk about it along with the HBO shows and the AMC shows and some of these other ones is because it ended so perfectly. 
it's because it was a really, really good show for a very long time. And then it builds up to the point where everything that had came, came before was distilled into these last five, six, seven episodes that were just amazing and emotionally devastating. And it just, it ended as perfectly as any of these shows in the book. Um, and because of that, and because of how I think about the ending, the shield is a better show than it might otherwise be if it had just sort of had an okay ending or even if they, if they fumbled it. Or if it just has been canceled before they had a chance to do an ending. Yes. Walton Goggins, right? Isn't Walton Goggins the greatest? <laughs> oh, Walton Goggins. I just found out that he's going to be in Django Unchained, which if there was anything that could make me more excited for Django Unchained, it's the presence of Walton Goggins. Walton Goggins and Tarantino were sort of destined to work together. I'm surprised it's taken this long. Yeah, it's funny because like, there's all these movie stars in the movie, and you know, like it's Tarantino, so he kind of gets whoever he wants, and I'm like, ooh, Walton Goggins. It's funny, though, because I've been doing this yeah, writing about TV for so long now, I get so much more excited when I go to a movie, and it's it's one of my TV actors in there. So when I saw Inglorious Bastards, you know, there's Sam Levine from Freaks and Geeks, and there's B.J. Novak from The Office as two members of the unit. I don't think Sam Levine says anything in the movie, but I was just happy to have him there. You know, you go see Argo, and suddenly Walter White is on the phone with Coach. And there are two incredibly minor characters in the movie, but it's Walter White and Coach. It seems like uh, Walt, you know, Walter White. Uh, what's why well, can't I think it was Brian Cranston? Yeah, uh, like there was just everyone was like, oh wait a minute, he's incredible. And then he was in like ten movies all at once. Like he was in that Total Recall reboot, and uh, I don't know a bunch of other stuff, right? Yes, no, I think I think he's done like eight movies in two years. I, like it's not a secret that he's obviously an incredible actor now, especially. Um, there aren't a lot of middle-aged movie stars. A lot, not a lot of people get famous uh, when he got famous. Yeah, no, and that, and that's why he's gonna keep getting roles of this size, maybe slightly bigger. I think he's like the villain in Total Recall. I didn't see it. I, I think he's the Michael Ironside. Uh, uh, Sorry, so he's not Ronnie Cox. I got it. Yeah, I think I didn't see it either. Who saw it? Who cares? <laughs> Uh, but regardless, he's he's never going to be the hero in a movie unless it's an indie movie. Just because you know you're not building a movie around a guy in his fifties like Brian Cranston, even though everybody loves Brian Cranston, even though he's sort of amazing. You know, John Hamm, unfortunately, is probably slightly too old to suddenly be a movie star, but I think he's going to get character work for a really long time. Um, but the people making these movies are watching TV, and they're seeing the work these guys are doing, and they're hiring them, and that's awesome. I mean, some of these people, uh, like I'm trying to think of who's a big movie star. I don't know. Uh, who's famous right now? Uh, Ryan Gosling. Like, yes. I see Ryan Gosling for like an hour or one to three hours every year. You know, I see like maybe one, maybe two Ryan Gosling movies. But Walter White, I, I hang out with him every week. Yes. So they're, they're, in a lot of ways, they're like, I don't know. They're, they're kind of become my favorite actors as opposed to movie actors who should be the bigger stars. Yeah, no, because it's because the shows are now playing on the levels of the best movies and you're getting 13 to 22 hours of them a, week, a year and it's coming into your house, it becomes a much more powerful relationship than the one you have with, you know, Gosling or whoever, Bradley Cooper or whoever, who you're spending two hours with once a year. While we're talking about TV shows ending and while we're talking about Breaking Bad, are you optimistic that Vince Gilligan's going to stick the landing for the final eight episodes? I think so. Um, I don't see any reason to doubt him, right? Here's the thing. The second season of Breaking Bad is the one that they kind of planned out in advance, and that's the, that's the one with the plane crash. That's maybe the shakiest of the endings of the, of the seasons that ended as opposed to the first one where there was a writer strike. I think it's still good, but it didn't necessarily feel 
like it, it tied in quite as well with the rest of it as some of the others. Yeah, you're right. Maybe I won't watch it. No, so there is a <laughs> chance he could screw it up. I don't think it's a very good chance. I'm assuming, you know, I've learned to trust Vince Gilligan after all this time. But I'm just saying there's a chance it might not be the perfect ending. But given everything that's come before, I have to assume it will be. There is an element of trust when you get into these shows, isn't there? Because with Homeland for a while, I was enjoying Homeland, but I was like, well, how can they possibly keep this up? And then they kept keeping it up. And I now I have to be I, I still have to fight that urge to be like, how could they keep this up? I have to say to myself, you know what? They're doing a good job. At some point I'm just gonna have to accept that this is a good show and that they're able to do it. That's what my that's what my entire review at the start of the second season was about was Okay, you know, we, we kept sort of moving the bar of success for Homeland all last season. Okay, this is a good pilot, but is there a show here? Okay, they've done a good three or four episodes, but come on, they got to play. They got to show some cards here. Okay, they showed some cards, but now what? Okay, no, there's no way they can possibly end the season. Okay, and at a certain point, just shut up. It's good, and, and I've had some issues with the second season, but I don't know that that's that's necessarily like a sustainability issue. As just they've made a few missteps here and there. That's a good show. Are you it optimistic about the uh, end of the second season of that show? Um, we'll see. My thing with this season is they've been much better when it's been character stuff than when it's been plot stuff. And the end of the season is going to have to be plot stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think part of it depends also on whether or not they're going to try to keep Damian Lewis around for a third season or whether Brody dies or goes to jail at the end of this one. Right. So Because I, I can see many more scenarios that will make sense from the latter than the former. That show seems like, you know, it's, it's a very good show, obviously. It's like an 8 out of 10 is a show with actors who are an 11 out of 10 and really eight of elevating the material. Yeah. Uh, Lewis and Claire Danes and Mandy Patinkin, they, they cover for a lot of sins sometimes, just like Kiefer Sutherland did on 24. I mean, 24 is a ridiculous show a lot of the time, but there's Kiefer Sutherland just making you believe in all of it. Yeah. So. Uh, all right, let's get back to the book. I'm sure you get this question a lot, but I want to throw some why not this shows at you. And it's basically, I I apologize, I'm sure you get this all the time, but I basically just want to hear you explain, uh, and I just want your take on some of these shows and their legacy. Uh, Six Feet Under. Why Six Feet Under not there? Two reasons. One, I I didn't want to do like every HBO show of that period, and I had already done Oz and Sopranos and The Wire and Deadwood, and all of which I liked more than Six Feet Under. Six Feet Under is a great show, and a different kind of show than the others, so I certainly could have come up with a chapter about it if I'd wanted to, but ultimately, I, I had issues with it. Six Feet Under is another one of those shows where I think uh, that finale really solidified the legacy of that show. It's a great finale. It's, I mean, it's really, it's a great last 10, 15 minutes, however long that montage goes, where you see everybody die one by one over, over the next couple decades. But, I mean, it's just, that was a very un- uneven show. Alan Ball is kind of like Ryan Murphy and that sometimes he will do these just amazing things and other times, like, it's either the best show in the world or it's the worst show in the world, and sometimes that's happening within the same episode, sometimes within the same scene. Okay. What about West Wing or Sports Night? I'll let you pick which one to respond to. Um, well, Sports Night is more of a comedy, and this was a drama book. Otherwise, if it, if it had been both... I would have been dealing with Freaks and Geeks and The Office and, and Arrested Development and some other things. Those are on my list. We're going to get to those. Okay. West Wing was a great show, especially the first two seasons of The West Wing. Great show. West Wing is a very traditional style network drama. Um, and this show is not, again, this, these are the best shows in TV history. It's here was a sort of revolutionary movement when all the rules were being broken and rewritten. 
And the West Wing was not a show that did that. And that's, that's not any sort of strike against the West Wing. It's just the West Wing was sort of playing by the original rules and doing really, really well, as well as almost any show had ever done playing by those rules. But it's not part of the revolution. Now, what about those shows you just mentioned, Freaks and Geeks? You know, you could, I think you could have included, not to give you notes now that the book is out, but I think you could have included Freaks and Geeks and gotten away with it. You know, there's certainly enough drama in there. I, I could have. My other, my other thinking of that, though, is that Freaks and Geeks, an amazing show, maybe my favorite, like, single season of a network show ever, was not incredibly influential in TV. It's been hugely influential in movies in terms of Apatow and, you know, Rogan and, you know, Jason Siegel and the other people involved in the show, James Franco, moving into the movies and doing all these things. But it was a huge failure on television and nobody really tried to sort of imitate it or, or spin ideas off of it for a very long time. And now Apatow is back producing Girls and some of the other people are back. But in terms of influence, it was non-existent for a really long time. So that would me, be me including Freaks and Geeks just because Freaks and Geeks is awesome and not because it fit the thesis of the book. Do you think its influence in movies is just that Judd Apatow and all of his friends are really popular now and dominating, uh, especially the world of comedy? Or do you think there's something about that show that uh, influenced comedy? I think it's more the former. I just think it's that Apatow and, and Feig and everybody else you know, were suddenly in positions of power where they could make movies and they have very similar sensibilities. So it's not just like it's Judd Apatow making movies that feel like freaks and geeks. It's like six, seven, eight guys doing it. What about The Office? And particularly, you know, one of the most influential shows of the past 10, 20 years or whatever, whatever period we're talking about here, uh, The British Office. Love The British Office. Uh, people have asked me sometimes if I'm going to do some sort of companion book about comedy. Uh, and I'm... Maybe that's what I'll do next. I don't know. I think I'd probably need to take a break before I do another book. Harder to but, write about comedy. Harder to write about comedy. And it would be a different book because the thing is, I think you can very clearly draw a line where if you're making a list of the best dramas of all time, you could make a list that begins in 1997. You know, you'd be leaving out some great shows. You'd be leaving out NYPD Blue and Hill Street Blues and St. Elsewhere and, and X-Files and some other things. But if you wanted to, you could do it and you could make that list and no one would question the inclusion of the 10 shows on that list and the construction of that list. You can't do that with comedy. Comedy, you have to have Lucy on it. You have to have the Honeymooners on it. You have to have Dick Van Dyke, All in the Family, like shows from every single decade. And certainly an argument could be made that you could make that list only of shows pre-1997, you know, which is around when my book starts, and that would be okay, too. Why is that? It's almost counterintuitive to me that the comedy dates better than the drama. Um, I think because drama for the longest time was not, uh, was not super ambitious. It was just, here's a formula, we're going to stick to this formula, we're going to sell some soap, you know, we're going to get in, get out. And sometimes there were certain shows that aspired to do a little bit more than that, you know, but even something like Hill Street Blues, which was you know kind of the Citizen Kane of TV drama, still to a certain extent had to hew to this formula. It had to be, all right, well, it's still, we're going to try to break as many rules as we can, but we're still the show on NBC on Thursday nights at 10 o'clock. We have to appeal to 15, 20 million people, however many watched it at the time. So we have to hold their hand. And yeah. that, that sort of ceased to happen. So... Yeah, it's true, and, and I've been guilty about this on the show many times, talking about the best TV shows ever, and really only talking about shows post-Sopranos. Sopranos is like uh, the birth of Jesus for TV. It's just like post and pre-Sopranos. Um, yeah, I mean, 
I, I do every summer. I sort of revisit an old show on the blog, and you know, for the most part, it's been HBO shows or other things from the last 10, 15 years. And, and I have friends at the AV Club, and they've tried to go back a little further. And every time they go back to anything pre-Sopranos, the, the traffic is virtually non-existent. It, it's kind of sad. Hmm, that's interesting. Do you think there's a chance that in the future? The Wire will be viewed as the series where it's pre and post The Wire because right now we're still, you know, relatively close to all these shows coming out. Uh, but The Wire does seem to uh, have more prestige, gain more prestige over the years than The Sopranos. You think that's true? Uh, it's definitely gained more prestige over The Sopranos. The, the Sopranos was considered the better show when they were on, at least up until maybe season four of The Wire. That's when the narrative kind of started to turn on that. And now, for the most part, when you bring up The Sopranos, it's usually to complain about something about The Sopranos that you didn't like, as opposed to remember something that you did. Whereas with The Wire, it's, you know, it, it just sort of it becomes more and more beloved. And it seems to, you know, it's like Obi-Wan Kenobi. You strike it down and it becomes more powerful than you can possibly imagine. It's just, it's, it's a much more popular show now than it ever was when it was on. Does that surprise you? Because I watched it when it was on. I know you did too. Uh, I picked it up uh, between the third and the fourth season, which was a big gap. So I didn't see it from the very, very beginning. But there was a time when I literally had no one on earth to discuss The Wire with. There was nobody. And now I feel like I could, you know, pretty casually drop an Omar reference and reasonably expect that someone in the room is going to get it. President Obama watches The Wire. That's, you know. Does that surprise you, you know, having lived through seeing how unpopular that show was? It doesn't surprise me in this respect in that I knew that the show was great and I also knew how much better it played when you got to see it all at once. The, as I said before, the, the narrative started to turn around The Wire season four. That was the season where HBO sent every episode out in advance. Whereas in previous years, they sent like the first four and then you get another two and then you get another two and then you get one and one and one all the way to the end. And so you're, you know, by the end, you're just watching it the way everybody else is. I think also the technology caught up to the show, and uh, I yes. loved in the book you made the comparison of people lending DVDs, like how people used to lend albums of up-and-coming bands trying to like yeah. get their friends into it. Hey, man, it's the Velvet Underground. Yeah, and I, so I, I think the technology caught up to it, too. Do you think uh, if The Wire, if we're in an alternate universe, there's a fringe-like alternate universe, uh, and The Wire didn't air until now, and forget the fact that uh, Broyles is Daniels, just put that aside for a second— uh, if The Wire started airing now, do you think it would have been popular? Do you think it would have had to struggle? Um, I still think it would have to a certain extent because, I mean, th those first few episodes are a chore to get through the first time. They're a lot of fun when you go back and you rewatch the season. But the first time, it's like, wait, who is this? What's happening? Wait, why are they? What? So it, even by today's standards, and in that way, I think you can't necessarily say – it's a pre- and post-Wire era because I think Sopranos was ultimately more influential than The Wire's been. I think The Wire would become more popular, but it would be one of those shows like Breaking Bad where it's much more popular in its third and fourth seasons than it was in its first because every year in between seasons you'd have people yelling at each other, you know, go watch it on Netflix or go watch it on HBO Go and get caught up. Uh, I want to get back to this list of shows that you callously left out of the book without regard I'm, for what I'm I wanted the worst. to read. I'm the absolute worst. The other one you mentioned, uh, Arrested Development. Now, that's a show, obviously, you've already mentioned that there are comedies in the book, so I'll give you that. But uh, do you think that's a show that has had a lot of influence? I love that show. Um, 
It's had some influence, and I do I do discuss it briefly in the book, just in the context of you know how Friday Night Lights came back, and now you know on, on Directv, and now Netflix is resurrecting shows. And for the love of God, it sounds like Netflix is going to bring the killing back. No one knows why. Uh, I think Arrested Development definitely did have influence, but it's also it's such a hard show to do. And one of the things you've seen in the other shows that either these actors have done or the creative team has done or in something like Running Wild, where you have the creators and some of the actors. That, I mean, that show was like lightning in a bottle, man. Exactly it's just right. it's so hard to duplicate. And I, I, I hope that the Netflix episodes are funny. I want them to be funny. But I also would not be surprised if the show comes back and it's just not good anymore. I mean, obviously, we're all hoping it's going to be good. How incredible yes. would it be if there's 10 new amazing oh, Arrested Development? Now, Netflix um, putting out these new shows, it's not often that you can see a potential revolution coming, but it seems like it could kickstart another golden age, you know, um, remove a lot of the notes process and a lot of the network notes that we were talking about earlier. And I'm not saying it's definitely going to do that or that it even probably is going to do that, but certainly has the potential to. Yeah. I mean, I've heard like, you know, one of their shows is house of cards, uh, which is the one with Kevin Spacey and David Fincher is producing. And I've heard that basically like he has seized all control of the show and, and, like, the Netflix executives don't even have access to DVDs of it. They have to go to screenings arranged by David Fincher. I, I don't know if that's true, if that's just a, a juicy rumor going around. That but sounds like a show I want to watch, though. <laughs> it could be good. And what's, what's really going to be crazy about it is, with both Arrested Development and, and House of Cards, they're going to release all the episodes on the same day at the same time. Now, what day... Do you think that's going to be – and I'm talking just like day of the week. Am I going to have to take a day off of work when Arrested Development comes out? I'm certainly I'm certainly not getting anything else done that day. Yeah. That's, that will be Arrested Development Day for me. But fortunately, I get paid for it to be Arrested Development Day. Um, I don't know what day it's going to be yet, but that's just – it's going to be so weird because, again, it takes the communal experience out of things. Because maybe you and your friends are going to take the day off and watch it, but maybe like another a friend of yours who loved it back in the day – is going to savor it and be like, okay, I'm only watching one today, and, and I'm going to watch another one next week. I want this to last as long as I can. And so you're going to have all these inside jokes about the Blue Man Group that you can't tell to him because you've seen it all and he hasn't. That's why I have to watch them all at once <laughs> before the internet ruins it for me. What do you think happens if House of Cards is it? I mean, Arrested Development is like a weird thing where it's got this built-in audience. I don't know how you judge success on that. But if House of Cards is you know the best show of the year, what happens after that? I don't know. It's we are in, we will be in very uncharted territory at that point because as as much as you can sort of say like rules were rewritten when HBO was doing it, it's still it's a TV model kind of. This is its own thing, even though they're going to look like TV shows. So I, I don't know what it's going to be like. I'm very sort of excited to see it, but uh, <laughs> prognosticating it, I don't know. All right, more shows that you didn't include in the book, Chuck. I know you're a big Chuck fan. You are often credited or, uh, as one of the people that really fought to bring that show back. What, what do you think? And I guess I know why I didn't include it. It's really more of a comedy. It's more, it's more of a comedy. It's a fun show. I, 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 lo I love Chuck. That's, Chuck is not a revolutionary drama, and I don't think. <laughs> J Josh Schwartz, one of the co-creators of Chuck, you know, sort of has one of the great you know, mock persecution complexes in all of show business and just sort of, you know, if, if you're not constantly praising him, you know, there can be problems. I have not gotten email one from Schwartz saying, how dare you not include this in the book? 
So I think even he knows that it's it's not that kind of show. But what do you think the legacy of Chuck is now that we're a year or two removed from it? The legacy of Chuck is that Chuck was a fun show. Um, I, I don't know. We're gonna ha- we're gonna have to see sort of whether the, this whole model of the the idea that the fans saved the show and whether or not the fans actually did save the show or whether it was just Warner Brothers made it so cheap that NBC couldn't say no. The le- the truth probably lies somewhere in between. Yeah, I think Jay Leno saved that show to a degree. Like there were a lot of just weird series just, of accidents. Yeah, NBC, NBC became just such a toxic waste dump that suddenly Chuck became one of their more reliable performers. Are there any shows on right now that you th- could see being added to this pantheon? Yes. I think Homeland could. Um, it's sort of a, it could go either way right now. I, I think it'll be a good show, but it also it has Homeland will continue to have the potential to go off the rails at any point. <laughs> That's going to be something they're just going to have to deal with at all times. Um, I think Justified could. Justified the second oh, season. Oh, interesting. The second season of Justified was kind of a Pantheon-level season. The first one you know, was off and on, and the third one was fun, but maybe not great. Boardwalk Empire at times feels like it can, and then at other times can be frustrating. Game of Thrones is sort of the same way. I think in both cases, those shows just sort of are dealing with too many characters and too much story sometimes. Game of Thrones is a weird one because it's based on a book. Yes. And its achievement is like uh, Lord of the Rings being made into a movie where you're like, where I think before it happened, people just thought it would be impossible. And not only are they doing it, they're, you know, by most accounts, nailing it. Yes. Uh, but I think, but also because it's beholden to the book largely, it creates problems where it's like, okay, now we have to bounce from here to here to here. Whereas maybe that's not necessarily the best way to be structuring the show. Yeah, that's probably true. What was the other one you said? Boardwalk Empire. You know, my thing with Boardwalk Empire and a few episodes behind on it, I think that show has ambitions that are no less than being the single best show on television. It wants so badly to be the best show on television, and it just is not. It's very good, but it's just not as good as it wants to be. It feels like a real underachiever to me. Wait until you catch up to the last few episodes. I was I was feeling much the same way this season, and then the last two or three uh, including last night's episode especially, really made me rethink a lot of what happened this season. It's, it's one of those where it's like, oh, okay, that's what that was about. Okay, it's sort of, it, it, much like the S.H.I.E.L.D. finale, it kind of retroactively raises your opinion of what came before. You know, you write about this TV revolution, but your book is also kind of part of a revolution. It is a self-published book. How was that process for you? Are you happy with the results? Uh, I'm very happy with the results. Um I was able to sort of have complete control. It was the exact book I wanted to write. I still hired an editor, uh, my friend Sarah Bunting, who's a professional copy editor and one of the founders of television without pity. So I wasn't, you know, just sort of writing into a vacuum. So she could not only fix spelling and grammar errors, but also just sort of tell me there were certain chapters that were complete messes and she helped me fix them and I knew they were messes. Um, So that was good. But I was able to do it on my own schedule at my own pace the way I wanted. And when I was done, I was able to put it out almost immediately. Yeah, I had no idea. Again, I read you almost every day. I had no idea this was coming. Yeah, I did. I suppose I could have like been teasing it and teasing it and being, oh, my book is coming. Oh, my book is coming. But I just, I wanted it to be done. I wanted the manuscript to be finished and it to be like off to the formatting company and then getting ready to be uploaded to Amazon and the other places before I could be, be comfortable saying, okay, this is a book. This is a real thing. And the great thing is once I said that, it was coming out almost immediately. So, so I finished writing this in late October, and it was published before Thanksgiving. Would you do this again? 
We'll see. We'll see how it's done. <laughs> I'm not asking you to make any promises. Well, no, and, the, and the great thing is sort of there, there are the tools in place to do it now where, you know, even a couple of years ago, I could have maybe done this as an ebook and that would have been it. Now there's a paperback and it's a high quality paperback that, that Amazon was able to produce. And I hired a cover artist and everything else. And it looks good and it's on my shelf and it looks like all the other books on my bookshelf. So it fe- it's a real book. It's nice. It is a real book. I read it. It's great. I recommend everyone read it. I, I mean, something we haven't even talked about is um, there's a lot of interviews with the creators of these shows. So you get a lot of yes. the backstory, and it's always more interesting getting that stuff when they're a few years removed from it, and they can be a little more candid. Yeah, I mean, that was that was nice. I, I ultimately didn't talk to Matt Weiner, for instance, but I don't know that I would have gotten a lot out of Matt Weiner about Mad Men that he hadn't already said because he's in the middle of the show, whereas you know David Chase, David Milch, David Simon, uh, Sean Ryan were able to, to talk about it with a little more perspective. I think I had the most candid interview I've ever had with Damon Lindelof when we sat down to talk about Lost. He was much more open about things because the show's over and everybody's mad at him anyway, so there's nothing he can say that's going to make people madder, so he might as well just sort of open up and be like, okay, we knew this then, we didn't know this then. Yeah, I mean, that was a real bombshell for me. He explicitly says when they were coming up with stuff, which is, I'm, I'm not sure, and I've read a lot about Lost, I'm not sure I've ever heard anyone say before. And what's interesting is we, we, had a, we did a long interview over dinner, and then over the following weeks when I was working on the chapter, I would email him follow-up questions, and there came a point where I think he, I got the sense that he was regretting some of the candor and was like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to give you specifics anymore on when things were because no no good will come of that. Does it still bother him that people feel that way about the show? No, I think I, I think it gets to him. I think it's easier now, you know, two years out than it was at the time. I feel so bad for him. He made this thing I love. He should know that he uh, brought so much joy to these people. You guys are you guys are upsetting David Lindelof. I'm yelling at the audience now. <laughs> I, but I think he's also sort of come, come to accept that, like, all right, these people liked it, these people didn't. It's funny, though, how, like, how temperamentally opposed Lindelof and Carlton Cuse are, where it's just like, if you read that chapter, every Carlton Cuse quote is just incredibly po- positive and enthusiastic, and most of the Lindelof cute quotes are kind of negative and neurotic, and, oh, God, I wanted to kill myself here. I couldn't believe this was happening. Um, and, it was, and it wasn't a case of like me cherry-picking and trying to paint one guy as one way and one as the other. It's just... These were the Damon Lindelof quotes that I had. Which one of them is developing a TV show based on the? It's a prequel to Psycho. That's Cuse. Cuse is doing the one based on Psycho, and Lindelof is doing the one for HBO based on the Tom Parada book about basically the Rapture. So both of those will be really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I love those guys, and I'll watch whatever they do. But a, a Psycho prequel series, if you, if you say so, Carlton Cuse. Yeah. So I love this book. I enjoyed it because, uh, you know, I had watched all these shows because you've been guiding my TV viewing for a decade now. How can people who are listening to this, how can they also become your disciples? Where can they go to read your work? Okay. Well, first of all, if you want to get the book, it's on Amazon. It's both paperback and in Kindle. It's on barnesandnoble.com for Nook. Um, it's going to be available in iBooks eventually, but that, that's taking a while. And what I tell everyone who asks is that the Kindle app for iPad and iPhone is good. That's how I did it. Yes, exactly. So you can do that. I have a website for the book at alanseppenwall.com that has links to all the ways you can purchase it, has a frequently asked questions list that explains some things, has links to every piece of writing I've done about all of these shows in the book. Um, and also, obviously, you can read me every day at hitfix.com. 
What's Alan watching? That's my blog. I review lots and lots of shows uh, every day, every week. You also have the podcast. I do. Firewall and Iceberg. Every Monday or Tuesday, me and Dan Feinberg uh, complaining to each other about things and occasionally actually reviewing TV shows. Well, I love the book. I'd recommend it. If you listen to the show, you're probably going to like it, too. Uh, Alan, thank you so much for guiding my TV viewing for all these years and writing this amazing book and being on the show. My pleasure, Jeff. Thank you. So that was a lot of fun for me. You know, since we recorded that interview, Alan's book, The Revolution Was Televised, which again, I cannot recommend enough. Uh, You don't have to listen to me recommending it anymore. It's really gotten some momentum. The New York Times gave it a great review. I believe it was uh, their first review ever of a self-published book. Again, the title is The Revolution Was Televised. Go read this book, people. It is terrific. Next week on The Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show, my guests are Freestyle Love Supreme. And uh, I'm going to do something a little unorthodox here. Usually uh, what I'll do is I'll give you a minute or two of next week's episode. Right now, I'm about to give you six and a half minutes, the first six and a half minutes of next week's episode, because I think after you hear them, uh, there's no way you won't be back for the entire thing. So here is the start of next week's episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. I am Jeff Rubin, and today I am very excited to be joined by UTK and Shockwave of Freestyle Love Supreme. Hello, Shockwave. Hello. And UTK. What's up, guys? And what is Freestyle Love Supreme? Ah, Freestyle Love Supreme is a theater, improv, rap, uh, magical supergroup of a whole bunch of talented people, and we do. How many people are there? Uh, uh, in a given show, because I actually don't know. I've seen you guys many times, and I don't know the answer to that. Well, because we always change it up. There's a lot of people who have the skill set, but in a in a show, there'll typically be five or six people. Right? Three, four, five, six. There is a beatboxer, two keyboardists, a host, and two MCs. Yeah. And Shockwave, you are the beatboxer. I am the beatboxer. UTK, you are one of the MCs. One of. Occasionally a host as well. A lot of people have the skill set. What, what is that skill set? Um, it's a very specific kind of skill set because the show is all about improvisation and freestyle and, and rapping. Mm-hmm. And, um, but not all rappers can do what we can do. There are better freestylers who can't tell stories. There are better freestylers who can't play characters, but we can freestyle and play characters and tell stories. And I guess perhaps the best way to explain exactly what you, what you guys do is to do it and this is an audio show, so this, and you guys do... Oh, uh, this is an audio this show? This is an audio podcast Why show. did I put makeup on? Yeah, why are there cameras everywhere then? <laughs> so you guys are going to treat us to a little freestyle love suit. I don't know what to do. I'm so bad yeah, at this. Yeah, well, th- how about we do this? This is a, a part of our show in the very beginning that we kind of do to get the audience warmed up and to let them know what we do. It's sort of a, mm-hmm. the most raw version of freestyle, too, which is essentially called the freestyle cy- cypher session. And this is, uh, you know... How about we? Uh, you throw some words, or we ask Twitter. I think right. See if- yeah. So we tweeted, we twat, and we said, "Hey, just throw us some words, and uh, you got you anything and we'll, yet?" And we'll rap about them. Let's see if we got anything. Because if not, we're gonna pull them out of a book or something, right? Yeah. So basically, it's you know just words are thrown at the MC, and the MC just takes them and weaves them into his his rhyme mm-hmm. styling. Yes. Okay. No words yet. No words yet. So I'm going to read words to you guys from a random book off your bookshelf. Yeah, just pick anyone that you want. Freakonomics. We got Sesame Street. Four years of life Sesame on the Street. street. You don't even need to read the books. I'm going for the Sesame Street one. All right, hold on. Okay. So, like, how do I know when you need a new word, or how, how does this? How, how? What are the mechanics of this? I'm so much more worried this, about this than you guys. This are. whole thing. <laughs> this whole thing is a jam session. You are you're part of the cipher. Okay. So you will feel it. Okarsh will. Uh, 
we'll we'll pull it from you or you just throw something in when you feel it's time for new fuel. This is fun. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Okay. So, you guys go. Okay, you're going already. You can give me your first right, word. Right, I need a word, of course. Milestone. Okay. Um, I work all day breaking my bones Right here on this microphone That's right, my style is prone To setting brand new miles to the stones Freestyling off the top of my dome Right here in Shockwave's home Got hermit. that flow, Jeff Rubin show Call me a hermit, I'm green like Kermit I smoke it all day long and I never ever heard it Discern it the rhyme flow, man, I learned it. Turn it sideways, my rhyme stays. You get all day long, I'm dazed and confused. I use Jeff Rubes. Got to give me another word so I can use Zany. Okay, listen, I'm going insane and zany. Nobody ever play me because they're only like three Indian actors in the United States. See, listen, girls, I want to date me, but I'm taking and I'm baking, cooking bacon in the skillet. Listen, I'm real and I feel it. Adventures. All right. Listen, I'm going to do it when I'm old. I'm on dentures and tell my grandchildren about my adventures. I've got the tincture. I am a fixture in this freestyle love supreme little mixture. Fuzzy. Okay, listen. Cause I'm buzzy I'm like fuzzy No, I'm like fuzzy Bear anywhere And I don't even care When I was younger I really wanted a teddy bear Or an Oscar the Grouch doll Listen, cause I rock for y'all I'll do it all day long The rhymes across the wall Funky Okay, cause I keep it funky I'm dunking Yeah, they call me the monkey I'm like George Cause I'm curious I float so furious Serious Leave him like Eddie Murphy Delirious Eerie is Spitting these rhymes now I'm doing it mm, I ate a hot dog for breakfast that was a non sequitur listen cause I get with her every single second and I get better and better -er. newsflash okay here we go you dash to your local radio station for the newsflash and here it is Obama back in the office and Jeff Rubin is on the show and yeah I am flossing and I'll be rocking the microphone with my boy shocking it don't stop cause we rock the clock tick and tock and you could give me another word every Ginger. second say it again Ginger. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I want to moist Minger <laughs> from the Gilligan Show. Her name is Ginger. She was the hottest one. Speed. Yeah, I'll be rocking, son. I'll give you what you need. i do it right now with speed. i keep it speedy. I needy. Listen to me because I'm writing graffiti. I gotta be. Toys. Okay, here's your boys. My favorite Robin Williams movie is Toys. LL Cool J. Rock the bells on that flick. I'm doing it right now and I stick prison. to your ribs. And I get in. I got the rhythm. I spend a couple nights in prison for right in graffiti on the wall in the Lower East Side. They kept me in there for a day and a night. Okay, I rock it like the Muppets and Puppets. Um, here's something for your stomach to fill it. Got to fill it. So real it. Oh, spit it. ABCs. I'll be rocking on the day. One of them on the ABCs. That was fucking fun. I was only half paying attention because I'm frantically looking for new words. I cannot wait to go back and listen to that. Let's break down what the hell just happened here. For that breakdown, you are going to have to tune in next Tuesday for the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show, and the Tuesday after that, well, actually, the Tuesday after that's Christmas, so somewhere between Freestyle Love Supreme and Christmas, I will be releasing the 2012 Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show, end of the year, Jeff-tacular. Over 20 guests have already confirmed that is going to be incredible. I will remind you about next week's episode, I'll remind you about the Jeff-tacular, and more if you follow me. Oh, wait! 
The other thing I'd remind you about is Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show live January 12th. I don't know if I've had this hard information before. January 12th, 6.30 at The Pit, the People's Improv Theater in New York. Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show live. I cannot stress this enough. It is part of the New York Podcasting Festival, and you can get tickets at nycpodfest.com. Guys, I don't charge you for the show. I never ask for anything. Please, someone come to the show. I don't want to do it for an empty theater. That's all I need. That's all I need is to not do this for an empty theater. So I'm going to remind you about all these things. Freestyle Love Supreme next week. Uh, 2012, end of the year, Jeff Tacular. Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show Live. If you, don't you want to hear me say this all the time? You're going to hear it if you follow me on Tumblr, JeffRubin, JeffRubin.com, Twitter at JeffRubinShow, uh, Facebook fan page, or YouTube.com slash JeffRubin, JeffRubin. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of this extremely long outro. Bye for now. <laughs>